I'm Charlotte Bates and this is a podcast for Social Research Methods, a podcast about ethics. Today I'm talking with Gareth Thomas, a sociologist interested in medicine, disability, stigma, reproduction and technology. His book, Down Syndrome Screening and Reproductive Politics, Care, Choice and Disability in the Prenatal Clinic, is an ethnography of Down Syndrome Screening in two UK clinics. In it, he identifies how and why screening is successfully routinized and how it is embroiled in both new and familiar debates surrounding pregnancy, ethics, choice, diagnosis, care, disability, and parenthood. Gareth is with me now. Gareth, can you tell us a bit more about your research? Yeah, sure. So um, thanks, Charlotte, for having me on this podcast. So my um, the book that Charlotte mentions there is based on my PhD research, which was an ethnographic study taking place in two hospitals in the UK with a particular focus on prenatal screening for Down syndrome. So as part of this work, I was particularly interested in the work of healthcare professionals. A lot of work on this topic had been done with parents and had been really focused in on quite crude measures of informed choice and why parents make the decisions that they do. And not to discount that work, but I thought it would be far more interesting and novel to follow professionals in that space. So I spent around a year in two different settings following the uh, professionals around the clinic and particularly again with a focus on screening for down syndrome but just going where they took me really and what i found was that down syndrome screening despite being framed as this um, opt-out technology as something which you could decide to do it was essentially routinized uh, as a normal expected uh, form of um, pregnancy engagement and I also found that the framing of disability in this space was either absent altogether or when it did emerge it was problematic for lots of different reasons so that is essentially a snapshot of the primary findings um, of the book but yeah methodologically speaking um, an ethnographic study over the space of a year supplemented with around 50 to 60 interviews that took place with professionals, but also with some parents of children with Down syndrome, as well as some um, people who had gone through screening, just to get a bit of a comparator, really, on the process of screening for Down syndrome. And that was supplemented, too, with some secondary analysis of policy documentation, of local guidelines, of technologies within that space that we use to deliver screening for Down syndrome. So that's a bit of a short overview of the project. This is obviously an incredibly sensitive area of research, both in terms of the setting that you were working in and the kind of topic as well. Can you tell us mm. a bit more about the ethical dilemmas that you encountered in the field? Yeah, definitely. So I think what really helped me when I was thinking about this was um, a paper that I was directed towards when I was undertaking my PhD by one of my supervisors, um, which was uh, by Gilliman and Gillam in 2004, making a distinction between what they call procedural ethics and ethics in practice. So procedural ethics is that which is, um, you know, applying for, reg you know, ethical approval via a particular body where you say that you're going to withdraw, you know, participants can withdraw at any point, all that kind of stuff. And then what they called ethics in practice. And what they mean by that is really kind of the ethical dilemmas which emerged within particular spaces whilst doing that research stuff that's unanticipated really and that's what I found the most challenging 
you know, whilst in my ethical approval, of course, I could um, state that when I was interviewing parents about um, their children or about their um, unborn child about the pregnancy and even professionals actually about their everyday practice there were moments in which it was incredibly um sensitive information but uh you know i could offer people the opportunity to stop the tape recorder i could offer them the opportunity to withdraw from the study to avoid particular questions and this i guess would be part of any kind of ethically sound project but what i found most intriguing and difficult was when I was in these actual spaces. So just to give an example, uh, because my project was essentially following the phenomena, according to the likes of Paul Atkinson or what uh, Marcus calls tracking, I was essentially going where the action took me. And that took me into spaces in which parents were being told really quite devastating news um, sometimes about their um, unborn child, for example, that they may not survive or that they would survive, but they would be um, severely impaired in, in, in different ways. And so parents were going to have to make very difficult decisions, either around termination of a pregnancy or continuing a pregnancy, or potentially as well uh, having surgery on their um, child once born, but very, very early on in the first few days of their child being born. So this were, these were really difficult conversations to be a part of, not just for the parents, of course, but for the professionals having to deliver this news. And again, much less problematically, I would guess, or felt a little less by myself as a researcher. So I guess in, in those moments, there were various solutions I would um, come up with, such as withdrawing from a particular space if I felt like I wasn't, it wasn't appropriate for me to be present at that, at that moment. Um, or just deciding to leave the field for quite a while, um, you know, just having a week or so off just to give myself a chance to um, kind of re-engage. There were a few particularly dark days um, when doing the field work where the professionals didn't want to be there. And as an ethnographer, I certainly didn't want to be there um, either. Really tough situations to, to inhabit as an ethnographer. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And there were other situations as well that maybe weren't so um, sensitive, but definite um, ethical dilemmas as well. So, for example, when carrying out an ethnography in an incredibly busy clinical space and um, trying to ensure that people knew why I was there, um, which, as Charles Bosk tells us, is just really not going to be possible in a really in, in a really chaotic uh, space where people are just um where it's just a real hustle and bustle really it's not possible and even it would might be strange to tell every single person within that space why you're there and to get them to sign a consent form as, stip, as stipulations often ask us to so even though there were more sensitive moments which I kind of expected when doing a project on screening for Down syndrome there were also things that I hadn't really anticipated as well um, when actually being in that space. So much there then about the ethics for the researcher as well as just the practicalities of conducting ethically sensitive research. Definitely. And I think that's part of being a reflexive researcher, just thinking about these things. And again, maybe not having to propose solutions to these, but thinking through 
um, strategies for dealing with them, or at the very least acknowledging that these um, acknowledging that these exist. There were also moments, for example, that um, just on that point of informed consent, you know, these were professionals who had spent a year with, and even towards the end, there were moments in which they would say, "So, are you? What are you again? Are you? Are you a medical student? Are you? What are you? A psychology? Um, just remind me." They were far more interested in me as a person as they were as me as a researcher and my credentials. And so even towards the end, I found myself um, thinking, okay, is, is this ethically appropriate? They still don't really know who I am and what my intentions are, but mm. maybe that's okay. And maybe that's not okay. Maybe that's something I need to think about. And I think having a short cover story early on, I thought would do the trick, but that didn't necessarily seem to be the case. And again, it, it, I don't think I ever really resolved that. It was just, you know, when I was writing up my thesis, just being clear that I was always very honest with people. If they asked me what I was doing, I never lied. But it was just, I think, a product of them working in an incredibly dense, chaotic environment. What my background was, was far less important than delivering news um, to patients about um, their pregnancy. Mm. that's really interesting it's almost like being an under undercover ethnographer when you don't want to be one yeah exactly I think that you know in ethno ethnography they kind of talked about this in terms of the issue of um, informed consent but you know there's also issues that came up when people did have an inkling of what I was but um, were slightly skeptical as well so there were a few people particularly early on who thought I might be um a spy well not a spy that's a bit dramatic but essentially someone who is there to provide um, assessments of them I think the professionals there were so used to being assessed they weren't necessarily used to someone being there hanging out just wanting to see what's going on and trying to explain that as a, a piece of research for people who aren't embedded within the social sciences sometimes really hard for people to understand but I think the more time I spent in that space and the more backing I had from people who acted as gatekeepers into that setting, you know, who facilitated my access, the easier that became. And those concerns generally subsided after a few weeks in that space. Really, really interesting. Lots of examples there about ethics in the field. I think your research mm. um, also really touches on the idea of the ethics of representation. Did you kind of revisit any ideas of ethics when you were writing your book and writing up your study in terms of how you would represent the kind of incidents and cases that you witnessed? Yeah. Um, so in terms of what you mean there, Charlotte, do you mean in terms of like the ethics of doing Down syndrome screening itself or like the kind of ethical issues that I came across? Did I talk about these within the book? Writing and representing what you were, what you were seeing in the field, I guess. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, um, I didn't actually talk about this much in the, in the book. So I talked about it a little um, towards the introduction, but actually this was kind of a product of the editorial process. When I um, put forward a proposal for the book, um, it was seen that having a chapter on this, on methods and ethics, um, wouldn't really belong um, in this space. They kind of wanted me just to get into the crux of the of the data and I think this is really why we often when we read ethnographic texts we often don't get this the messiness and the kind of representation of these ethical moments tends to be either absent altogether or tucked away in an almost apologetic afterthought 
at the end of the book. So although I was disappointed by that outcome, I decided that I was going to write about um, my experiences um, in, a, in a journal article. So I wrote an article published in 2017 um, that really aimed to kind of represent these some of these ethical issues, but also my experiences as a male ethnographer in a, in a space which was primarily inhabited um, by women, not just in terms of the professionals, but of course the, the patients as well. And whilst men were um, present within this space, I was, you know, on the vast majority of Jane's the only male within that space. So I do talk about um, these elements in, the, in that paper, but for the most part, they've re remained relatively um, silent. And I think that's a, that's a kind of product of the wider academy, not just within my own work. Mm. No, I definitely agree with that. And I think that's what we're trying to, to do with this podcast series, really, is to uh, give people a space to talk about the, um, the methodological issues that they encountered in the fields that, that don't get included in written accounts. Yeah, and I, I completely would support that. I think, particularly when I'm advising my dissertation students in year three, um, when they're writing the methods chapter, I, I kind of make the argument that any of that personal information and experience that is abstracted really makes for quite a dull chapter, for example, when writing about methods. If it's just a almost textbook account of what a method is and what, you know, and how long an interview was, for example, or how many hours um, observation you did in ethnography, that could be just really read as quite um, a sanitized and, again, just quite mundane um, account, really, and almost slightly inaccurate and, um, I wouldn't go as far to say unethical, but just a, a misrepresentation, really, of what happens when we do research. Research is messy, it's complex, it doesn't always go to plan, what we often are presented with are these very neat accounts of how research happens. But what you don't really get is um, the frustrations and the um, difficulties and the ethical dilemmas. And I guess that was something I tried to reflect upon in my 2017 paper. You know, I talk about, for example, the ethnographer as someone who, you know, they're a person as well, first and foremost. And there were times when I was doing this research where I was tired, where I was upset, where I was angry with what I saw, where I really didn't want to be in the field, but felt like I had to be. Mm. You know, we go through all of these emotions and those are often so um, abstracted from the experience where researchers are wrongly seen as these emotionally neutral, rational, self-contained actors. Um, that doesn't really account for how our presentation in the field doesn't necessarily unfold unproblematically. Actually, there might be various problems that emerge in relation to that. Brilliant. So much to think about in today's podcast. Thank you for joining us, Gareth, and for sharing your experience and your research. Mm -hmm.